scripture reading for today is found in Philippians, the first chapter, the 27th verse, through the second chapter, the fourth verse. And you'll find it in your pew Bible in page 1161, or maybe on the board. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that is the word for today. Thank you all for joining in that song. This is Vision Sunday, and some of you will have noticed that we've moved ahead in Philippians, even though we were unable to meet uh, and look at chapter 1, verses 18 through 26 last week. That's because this is Vision Sunday, and the instructional heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians that begins in 127 speaks very directly to where we believe God is calling us as a church. And so if you'll forgive me, we're going to be a little out of order. We'll rewind next week and look at 18 through 26. After that, we'll be back on track, and it'll all work together. So some of you will also remember that the passage before us is the one that I preached on last April uh, for my candidation sermon. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the same sermon this morning. Uh, there will be some overlap because it is the same passage, but we're going to take both a broader look in that we're going all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, and also a more focused look because we're asking the question, where is God leading us as a congregation as we move forward into the future? How does Paul's vision for the church in Philippi inform our vision here at Westgate? More specifically, what does it mean? What does it look like? And what will it take to be a gospel-centered church? To use Paul's language in 127, a church that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's our question this morning. What is a gospel-centered church and what will it take? What does that mean for us here at Westgate? So please join me in praying and asking God not only to open our eyes and give us a vision of the future and where we're going, but to give us a vision of himself. 
clear and compelling vision of who he is. Let's, let's ask that together. Lord, we do pray that you would meet us. We do pray that you would open our hearts by your spirit to see you more clearly. Lord, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we plan and get together and try and do as a church is about you. So may you be on display. This is not about us. It's about you and your grace. May that fill our hearts. May that give us joy as we look into your word and as we look to where we're headed. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is Paul's central call to the church, to the Philippian church and to our church, all churches, to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And there's urgency and priority in Paul's call. He says, whatever happens, or only, in other translations, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. If you do nothing else as a congregation, do this one thing. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Which is not to say that anything we ever do is truly worthy of the gospel. Paul's not suggesting that we should figure out a way to live our lives with such holiness and piety that we're actually deserving of the gospel, that we deserve what Jesus has done for us in his death, that his death was our due reward for living such a good life. Nothing could be farther from Paul's mind here. Rather, to live worthily of the gospel is to set the gospel at the center of our lives. It is to live in accordance with what God has done for us through the good news of Jesus. So it's to let the gospel shape everything about us personally and as a community and to let that direct our purpose and our mission. The word that's translated live here or conduct yourselves is language of citizenship. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Later in chapter 3, Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. So our true and highest allegiance belongs not to Caesar or to the rulers of this world, but to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords. And our hope and our purpose in life are not shaped by the good news of ESPN or Oprah or Hollywood or the Tea Party or the Wall Street Journal or anything else, but by the gospel of Jesus the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? As we've said before, if, if this good news of Christ is so central to our lives, both personally and as a church, we cannot afford to assume it, to presume that we know what it is, or to just agree with it intellectually without applying it to the whole of life. A gospel-centered church never stops preaching the gospel to itself or to others. Listen to how Paul summarizes the gospel, the good news of Jesus in Titus 3, 
verses 3 through 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's where we've come from. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's Paul's summary of the gospel, one of many we find. So the gospel is about salvation. God our Savior who saved us through Christ our Savior. It's about salvation. It's about everything God is doing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to take us from being foolish and hopeless rebels enslaved to our sin to forgive us of those sins, to clean us up, to unite us to himself, to give us new life, a new identity, a new family, a new mission, new passions in our heart, a new pattern of living, along with the confident hope of glorifying and enjoying him forever. Not because we deserve one lick of it, but all by his grace. All by the favor that he shows undeserving sinners on the basis of what Christ has done for us. By grace, through faith. God's not asking us to figure out a way to clean our lives up, to try harder in order to make it up to God. He's saying, look at the cross and cast all your hope and all your trust on him. He was enough. He's enough. That is the gospel message. And Paul wants us to center our lives on this gospel message, to live worthily of the gospel of Jesus. So what does that look like for us as a church, as a congregation? What fruit should we expect, and then what will it take to cultivate that fruit? So let's think first about the fruit. What should we expect? What does a gospel-centered church look like? Paul answers that question for us in the rest of verse 27 through verse 30. And we can summarize it like this. A gospel-centered church operates as a community on mission. A gospel-centered church operates as a community together on mission. In verses 27 to 30, Paul describes three things that he hopes to find true among the Philippians regardless of whether or not he ever gets out of prison and is able to come visit. Three things that should be true of a gospel-centered church, which can really be summarized under two key subjects. So 
first the three things. He wants to find them. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit. That's the first thing. Or perhaps in the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Second, he wants them to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. And third, he wants them to do so without being frightened in any way by those who oppose them. So three things Paul wants to be true about this church, which can be summarized in two key subjects. First, community, how we relate to one another, and mission, how we relate to the world. A gospel-centered church operates as a community on mission for Jesus. And again, by community, we simply mean relationship together. Look at the relational language of verse 27 particularly the emphasis on unity and teamwork, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side. That, that gives me the picture of, a, of an offensive line. You know, they're standing there side by side, ready to advance as a unit, each one playing their respective roles for the sake of the team. That picture of teamwork and unity or to change the metaphor, it's like a grand symphony with every instrument tuned to the same piano following the same conductor and playing in majestic harmony with one another. A gospel-centered church is not like your average high school basketball team where the team's success depends usually on one or two star players. Rather, it's a community where everyone knows that they need everyone else, that we're all part of the team, that we all bring something to the table, each having our own gifts, our own skills, our own contributions, regardless of our age, building one another up, strengthening one another for our mission. Because this community has a mission. We have a mission. We have a purpose. Look at the end of verse 27. They are contending or striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's purpose there. This is about the gospel's advance. Now, we've already seen earlier in the book how Paul was so thankful for their partnership in and for the gospel. He thanked them in 1, 3 through 8. A gospel-centered church has purpose. We are to be partnered together for the advance of the good news of Christ. But what does that mean? What precisely is our mission as a church? Well, Paul clarifies this in verse 30. He wants them to be engaged in the same struggle that they saw that he had and now hear that he still has. That struggle, indeed the central struggle of Paul's entire ministry, was to bear verbal witness to the gospel of Jesus. To proclaim Christ, to tell others the message of salvation through him, and to see that salvation bear fruit in changed lives. That was Paul's mission. Paul says in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may 
finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now we see that from one end of Philippians to the other. Paul is in prison for the defense and confirmation of the gospel in Philippians 1.7, which was advancing there in that prison, verse 12, and elsewhere as others were emboldened to preach the gospel, 1.14-18. This is what Timothy and Epaphroditus devoted their lives to at the end of chapter 2. It's what Euodia and Syntyche partnered together with Paul in, in chapter 4, verse 2, two women from the Philippian church who had, quote, labored side by side with Paul in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers. It's what the Philippians generously gave their money toward in 4, 10 through 20, to help Paul declare the gospel of Jesus throughout Europe and Asia. In other words, Paul's mission and our mission is the Great Commission, the final instructions that Jesus gave his apostles and his church when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission is not something to be fulfilled only by those in cross-cultural contexts. Though it's not less than that. It definitely includes that. But rather, every single Christian is called to be a missionary in their own context, and every sphere of our lives is part of our mission field. From the school cafeteria, to the workplace cubicle, to the barber chair, to the church sanctuary, to the neighbor's backyard. We are called to pray for those around us. We're called to love them and to serve them after the pattern of Christ. And we are called to explain the gospel of Jesus clearly and faithfully to them using words. Now, sometimes we think that if, if I'm just nice enough, I won't have to say anything. They'll just kind of figure it out that it's about Jesus. But as my friend and former colleague Chris Castaldo puts it, as nice as you, be, as nice as you may be, Nobody's ever going to come up to you for that reason alone and say, Wow, he's a nice guy. I'll bet Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead to provide me with forgiveness and eternal life. That's just not going to happen. The gospel is news. Therefore, news requires words. We must verbally proclaim. We must tell others. And for that reason, part of our vision moving forward is therefore to help everyone uh, be able to explain that gospel message clearly and concisely. Not only that, to help all of us understand how that gospel affects everything about life, from our own personal growth, our relationships, our families, our community here, to our gathered worship, to our witness 
to our discipleship. A church that lives worthily of the gospel is a church that's partnered together to see more and more people turn from worshiping and reflecting the lifeless, damning idols of our culture to worship and reflect the life-giving, merciful God of the universe. The God who's made himself known to us by his spirit in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what a gospel-centered church does. Even when it's met with opposition. There's a reason that Paul encourages us not to be frightened in any way by opposition in verse 28. That's because we will be sure to find it. When we proclaim Jesus as the true king and savior of this world, we are bringing a direct challenge to the false gods and idols that presently occupy our culture and our own hearts. Idols like greed, sex, money, knowledge, power, self. And those idols don't like to be challenged. And they don't mind playing dirty to keep us away. We will face opposition if we are faithful to proclaim the gospel. But Paul encourages us not to be afraid. And he does so by reminding us that suffering, strange as it seems, is actually part of the plan. Suffering is part of God's design. He calls it a gracious gift in verse 29, right alongside the gift of faith. Though our suffering looks like defeat and destruction to our opponents, as though they're winning and we're losing. It is in reality a signal of our union with Christ and thus of our salvation in him. It's a chance to share in the sufferings of Christ, an opportunity to show the world what the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ looks like by following his pattern and laying our lives down joyfully and courageously for the sake of the gospel. God never promised that partnership in the gospel would be easy. And that means, by the way, that if the gospel is going to set our vision moving forward at Westgate, it's not all going to be easy. It's going to cost us everything everything. But that's precisely what Jesus gave for us. Everything. He set aside the glory of heaven. He chose not to use his own deity to exploit for selfish gain, but rather he laid it aside, taking on flesh, becoming obedient to the point of death to give us everything. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. A gospel-centered church operates as a community on mission for Jesus. 
So what will it take to do this? What does this calling ask of us? What does it require? Paul continues in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Being a gospel-centered church requires unity, humility, and love. Being a gospel-centered church requires unity, humility, and love. What Paul described as an expectation or desire in verse 27, he now tells them to actively cultivate in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the similarity to the language of unity again in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one purpose. So partnership in the gospel requires unity. He says it four different ways in this verse alone. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Now, on the one hand, that unity is already a reality. We have been united together in Christ, both in him and with one another in him. So that unity is already a reality for all who are united in Christ. At the same time, it's also a goal. If we are to partner together as a community on mission for Jesus, then we need to live out that unity. We need to be able to work together and to get along, which is no small miracle for the average church. Even the church in Philippi had problems. Paul addresses a conflict that's, that's messing things up in chapter 4. Now, Paul is not talking about uniformity here. He's not saying that we all have to agree on every fine point of detail or that we should all have the same tastes in music or have the same gifts or be the same age or have the same color of skin. He's not talking about uniformity. God loves diversity. That was his idea. Neither is Paul saying that we're never going to have disagreements with one another or conflict. We're still sinners. Sorry to say it, but we will let one another down. I will let you down. Your elders will let you down, and you'll let one another down. We're not perfect yet. The Lord hasn't returned. We're not in his presence. Rather, what Paul is saying is that this diverse group of sinners who've been saved by grace are called to a unity shaped by and focused on our common identity in Christ and our common cause for the gospel. That's the focus of our unity. So it's a unity marked by and nurtured, nurtured by both humility and love. The love that we have received from God, despite our sin, is a love we share with one another. God wants us to actually like each other, to have affection and friendship as a community, which means we need to do the hard work of getting to know one another, of sharing life together, getting to know newcomers, spending time in each other's homes the way family operates. We're called to a love like Christ's. 
And for that love and that unity to flourish, it takes humility. Humility, which is not thinking lowly of yourself. That's not what humility is. Humility is thinking highly of God and highly of others and accurately of yourself. You are a sinner saved by grace. Paul shows us what humility looks like in verses 3 through 4, chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is saying no to self and yes to God and others. It's following the pattern of Christ. Being a gospel-centered church requires unity, humility, and love. Now, the very reason that these exhortations are so important is because our unity, humility, and love can be so fragile. This was illustrated to me in an unforgettable way by one of my former pastors, Kent Hughes. He told a story from a book called Great Church Fights. You can imagine where that one's going. It quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. Quote, Yesterday, the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Last night, one of the group called a Let's Be Friends meeting. It broke up in an argument. The newspaper article was headlined, Hallelujah, Two Jacks in One Pulpit. That's pretty funny. It's pretty terrible. It would be even funnier if it wasn't true. It would be even funnier if it didn't touch uncomfortably close to some of our own past. What will it take not to dissolve into the kind of selfish ambition and rivalry that fuels division, that fractures our community, and derails our service and witness to Christ because we are only that far from it? The reality is the greatest threat to the gospel's advance is not the world around me. It's me. I am the greatest threat, self. My cherished desires, 
my unyielding preferences, my glory. Every single one of us faces the massive temptation to prioritize self over against unity in a common mission or to preserve self over against boldness when we face opposition in our mission. Why is it that I can be so impatient with others, especially when it looks like my plans and my will aren't being done on earth as I think they should be done in heaven? Why is it that I hold so closely to those plans, those desires, such that I let them, that I let a plan or a program or a position become more important to me than another person? Why am I so tempted to dismiss somebody's idea just because I didn't come up with it? Why do I care so much what people think of me? such that I'm willing to lie. I'm willing to boast and, and tear others down to make you like me better. Why do I do that? Why do I treasure myself so much that I withhold forgiveness when someone wrongs me so that they can feel the pain they caused me? Why am I so consumed with self, with me? Selfish ambition and vain conceit course through our veins. What will it take to repent and move beyond that? These are exciting times as we dream together as a congregation about moving forward for the Lord. How do we move forward without being distracted or being derailed by division and disunity. If we can't answer that question, then everything else we've been talking about is a wash. What will it take for a gospel-centered church to operate as a community on mission with unity, humility, and love? We must be so satisfied in Jesus that we are free to serve Jesus. We must be so satisfied in Jesus that we're free to serve Jesus. Another way of putting this is that we can never leave the gospel behind. We never outgrow our need for the grace of God. Unless the gospel does its transforming work in our lives and in us as a community, we will have nothing to give each other and nothing to give to the world. The gospel of Jesus is our motivation for unity. Look again at chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, if knowing Christ and the forgiveness and joy and peace that we have in Him brings you any comfort or encouragement, if there is any comfort from love, if you've experienced any sort of comfort or support from the love of God or the love of one another, if any fellowship 
in the Spirit, if you enjoy any relationship with God or with others because of the Holy Spirit's work, if any affection and sympathy or compassion, if there's any warmth in your heart toward one another or in the hearts of others toward you, and the implied answer behind all of these ifs is an unqualified yes, there is, that's true if you're in Jesus then, for this reason, because of what the gospel of Jesus has done and is doing in your lives, Paul says, make my joy complete by walking in unity, humility, and love as a community on mission for Christ. The gospel of Jesus itself is our motivation. And as Paul continues on in the letter, he shows us that Jesus is also the pattern and the power for this vision of life. In chapter 2, 5 through 11, Jesus is the pattern. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the pattern for what this kind of humility, unity, and love look like for a gospel-centered church. He's also the strength and the satisfaction. Paul says in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You hold up the things of this world, the things we're tempted to prioritize and preserve, and then you hold up Jesus. These things pale in cheap comparison. They don't hold a candle to the beauty and sufficiency and power of our Lord. Only a joyful satisfaction in Jesus frees us to move beyond self and toward one another in joyful, humble, unified partnership for the gospel's advance. Because if you are fully satisfied in Jesus, if you are consumed with him, if he's everything to you, the, the treasure of surpassing worth, such that you're willing to lose everything else, if you are fully satisfied in Jesus, then there's no room left for self. There's no room left for self. We're free to heed Paul's words in 2, 3 through 4, to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than ourselves. I'm free to love you, to think more highly of your ideas and your desires and your preferences than mine. I am free to want what's best for this church 
as a whole and for its faithfulness in the gospel's advance, even if it means my ideas or preferences don't work out. If we are fully satisfied in Jesus, we are even free to suffer, to be taken advantage of, to be inconvenienced for the gospel. Because even if our witness to Christ causes us to lose our reputation or to lose a friend or a family member or a job, even if it costs us our lives, we know that in the economy of the gospel, we've actually lost nothing. Because if Jesus is everything, there's nothing else worth holding on to in life compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Paul says in 121, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. A gospel-centered church is so satisfied in Jesus that it's free to serve Jesus. Operating as a community on mission with unity humility, and love. May Jesus find us at Westgate so utterly consumed with him, so completely dependent on his spirit, so united in joy and compassion and love, so eager to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel, that it would please him to use us to rescue and to change sinners in the Metro West, throughout New England and to the ends of the earth, even as he continues to change us for the sake of his name and glory.